am sitting here with Dan Moore, uh, formerly of Naperville North High School and currently retired. How are you, Dan? I'm relaxed. Well, that's that's you look relaxed with your fishbone shirt, shorts, and water shoes. I don't know what's going on there. They're sketchers. They're sketchers. It's the S. Hmm. Dan, why don't we start off how we normally do with this, and uh, let's do a little bit of a uh, bio and timeline of you. Okay, well, let's see. I'm a, I'm a small town boy, uh, born and raised in Metamora, Illinois. Um, my grade school band director was uh, Ed Winkler. He was a bassoonist, but he was just incredibly meticulous in his whole approach to everything he did. Um, he was really into IGSMA and uh, made sure that we were all playing exactly the level solos we should be playing at, at solo and ensemble contest. Um, we were, you know, a, for a small school and a small band, you know, we always made it to the state level at IGSMA. So he was my first real influence to the point where I'd pretty much decided this was what I was going to do for a living in sixth grade. And I never looked back. I just, my mother asked me one day what, what I wanted to be. And I said, I want to be a band director. And I didn't know whether I was going to be, you know, middle school or high school or what. I just knew that that seemed to be something that, that really appealed to me. Um, I was able to, you know, play trumpet fairly well. Well, cornet at that time, I was too little to hold a trumpet. Um, and then when I got to high school, uh, I had Mike D'Amico, and it was his first year at Metamora at that time. The Metamora band program was certainly not as storied as the Joliet, uh, but for that, <laughs> but 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 for that area, um, you know, with uh, the guys like Dan Gannon that had gone through there and and created a, a really fine community band, as well as a, a, a very respectable. Uh, high school band and Mike D'Amico came in fresh out of ISU. He was part of that class of ISU band directors uh, that included Greg Bim and Dan Dietrich and and all these uh, guys that seemed to all be at ISU at the same time. So uh, whereas uh, Bim ended up at Marion, uh, Mike D'Amico ended up at Metamora. And uh, he was a trumpet player and so I, I got that influence. I never really had private lessons. Uh, that wasn't something that was affordable for me. I came from a, a very blue collar family. So the whole idea of taking private lessons and spending money on that or even owning a piano, that just wasn't in the cards. Uh, but, you know, uh, Mr. D'Amico took me under his wing and and even uh, my senior year let me write some of the marching band drill. And that's where I got kind of hooked on that. I'm kind of in the midst of that right now. I'm coming up for air of, out of drill writing season. Um, anyway, as I got to the end of my high school career, it was time to decide where I was going to go to college. And that was real easy. Mr. D'Amico said, go to Western Illinois University, study with uh, Dale Hopper. And, and I said, okay, that's what I'll do. So that's what I did. Uh, went to Western. Uh, Mr. Hopper was wonderful. I spent so much time in his office just picking his brain. I really treated college as an opportunity to just pick as many brains as possible. I was probably more of a nuisance than anything, uh, but uh, it seems to have worked out pretty well. So, you know, I was, you know, principal trumpet in, in pretty much all the ensembles, drum major of the marching band. And by my junior year, 
Mr. Hopper had me writing drill to the point where I was writing pretty much all the drill by my senior and second <clears throat> second senior year. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, I was a, a double major with theory and composition for a while there until I figured out that I just wanted to write band music and not the stuff that the theory comp guys wanted me to write. Um, it, concurrent with being at uh, at Western, I was also in a drum and bugle corps, the Geneseo Knights, which uh, those were kind of the glory years of that of that uh, kind of rural drum corps, um, the years that we had fairly full cores, 82 through 85. And when I aged out of that, I instructed for three years following that and started writing and, uh, and writing the music as well. So I kind of uh, got really into the creative portion of everything. Out of college, I started at Milledgeville High School, which is up in the northwest corner of Illinois, um, it's kind of funny cause my wife and I just got back from our uh, 28th anniversary trip. We went up to Galena and on the way we snuck into my old school and she was real nervous about that because she hates getting in trouble for anything. So, you know, I just barged right in. <laughs> I heard some noise from custodians working and whatever, but I didn't see anybody and just went to the band room. Band room was unlocked, went in the band room, snooped around all over the place it seemed really, really tiny. Uh, I know it was a tiny band room at the time. Okay. It seems even tinier now. It's not too much bigger than this office is how big this band room wow. was. Really, really tiny band room. So uh, she took a bunch of pictures of me there in the band room. Anyway, um, after uh, after two years at Milledgeville, I went on to Watsika High School on the other end of the state. And that was a, a program that had gone through seven band directors in seven years. And but it had a storied history of the old uh, Bands of America Summer National Circuit, so I knew that there was something to build on in that community, and so I went there. Started off with about thirty kids in band, and uh, spent four years there, uh, doing both, uh, it, pretty much doing everything: uh, beginners, junior high, high school. It was a high school of about 300, 350 kids. And, you know, we were, we were up to about 50 kids in band after that fourth year. And then I uh, decided now that I was married and, and was about to have babies, uh, I better find a job that paid a little better than, than the rural job I was in. So I went to Limestone High School, which is near Peoria. It's in Bartonville, Illinois, and spent five years there. And that was a, a program that had a lot of bodies um, but maybe there wasn't a whole lot going on. Uh, the, the band director was retiring and, um, you know, he was just a great guy and the kids absolutely adored him, but, you know, they, they really weren't meeting the potential that that program had. So after having Santa Claus as their band director, I kind of came in and I was the Grinch. Oh. And, uh, so that, that kind of... That changed some things there, but it, it changed things for the better. And uh, that's now a program that, through a couple of other directors, um, has continued to thrive in that area. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. Um, at, at this point, it was time to think about going to graduate school. And uh, with writing drill for so many other bands during the summer and everything else, you know, and I still did a lot of playing. Um, you know, I just couldn't find the time to piecemeal the, the master's degree, do it in summers or things like that. Cause that was kind of my busy season, um, with the drill writing. So I just kind of 
threw caution to the wind, and my wife was wonderful about it. She said, you know, whatever you need to do to, to, to make you happy. And so I resigned and went to graduate school with no job to go to afterwards. And tell you us know. about your wife real quick, her, her band history. Well, uh, Kay is, um, she's also a band director. She teaches two of the feeder schools that eventually feed Naperville North. And she, um, she uh, went to Western Illinois. That's where we met. We met, but uh, she has the distinction of going to Marian Catholic and having Greg Bim come in as her band director when she was a sophomore in high school. So, um, so we have that connection. And actually, I I guess I skipped over part of that. I did my student teaching with Greg Bim, and it's kind of interesting the connections you find. Um, I was at IMEA, I think my my senior year at Western. And I ran into Greg Bim and introduced myself, and he said, we're related. And I said, really? Yeah, we're related. I ran into your your stepdad uh, at a reunion last summer. Well, how are we, we related? Well, my wife, Connie, is your stepdad's cousin. Okay, so that makes Greg Bim my step-second cousin-in-law. Okay. And so I said, oh, that's great. Can I student teach with you? <laughs> so, yeah, a little bit of nepotism never hurts anything. So that, that got me into student teach with him. And, you know, that's I you know, spent a lot more time with my wife, Kay, when I was student teaching there as well. And that's kind of what led to us eventually getting married. Um, anyway, I, for graduate school, I went to Northwestern. Uh, I looked at a lot of different options, but that was the one where uh, we could kind of move in with my wife's parents who live in the south suburbs and kind of freeload off of them. And I just kind of got uh, a room, a bedroom in a house up near Northwestern that I could live in during the week and, uh, and go to school there. Uh, I, I chose an interesting path with that. Um, I've always tried to be kind of a balanced band director and that the marching, the concert, and the jazz try to be balanced and all that. But let's face it, I was from Metamora, Illinois. I wasn't getting a whole lot of jazz exposure other than just being in the high school jazz band. And then even at Western with, uh, you know, Dale Hopper, who was fantastic, you know, I still really wasn't learning a whole lot about jazz other than just how to play it and how to really teach it and how to really get the nuts and bolts of it, I, I felt like that was my weak link. So when I decided what to do for graduate school, I decided to go jazz pedagogy. Northwestern was offering a jazz pedagogy degree. Uh, Don Owens, who I'd heard nothing but wonderful things about at that time, you know, he just uh, greeted me with open arms and said, come on in. We will we'll put you in charge of the second jazz band. We'll get you some graduate assistantships, uh, writing drill for the marching band and uh and I also worked with the Contemporary Music Ensemble, which people often wonder, contemporary music, you're talking about pop? No, no, no. As in weird, new, wacko music. That's what, what the Contemporary Music Ensemble was. In fact, I got to uh, conduct a, a premiere piece of one of, my other, one of the other grads there uh, with John Adams in the audience. So that was, that was kind of a no-pressure situation <laughs> there to have John Adams make sure that my friend and other graduate students' piece came out okay for him. So... Anyway, uh, that after that that whirlwind year at Northwestern, getting that uh, jazz pedagogy degree, um, I heard that Naperville North uh, had a possible opening. With Brian Wiss was completing his uh, doctorate, and he was going to you know go on 
to teach college somewhere, and that was going to leave a spot. So I called Jim Stombries, the head band director there, and introduced myself. And he he had a he was already aware of my work with uh, Limestone High School, having seen us at in marching band competitions and things. And so you know we met met for lunch at Colonial Cafe and and talked through things. And he said, "Yeah, I think this could be a good fit." So we went through the whole series of interviews and and uh and things that finally got me got me hired there and this was you know beginning of june it's like all right i'm gonna get to be assistant band director to jim stombries and i'm gonna get to learn from him and i'm and this is gonna be awesome i'm gonna get it's not like i'm taking over a whole program this is a storied program already um with you know 300 kids in the band program they played at midwest they played at the national concert band festival this is going to be awesome. And then a month later, Jim Stombries men in blacked me. <laughs> so the, the for those that don't know what the plot to Men in Black is, at the very end, it's revealed that Tommy Lee Jones wasn't looking for a partner in Will Smith. He was looking for his replacement. So then Jim said, by the way, I'm going to move over to Kennedy Junior High. And uh, so the program's yours. So have you forgiven Jim? For that? Oh, I have. Okay. I have. It was, it was a, a little scary. I, I I cried a little bit. I kind of just sat in my car in the parking lot and said, "I don't know if I can do this." And that's a true story. That's right? an absolute you, true story. What What was going through your head at that point? Uh, that I don't know how to make a band sound like that yet. I mean that that was literally it. I actually sat in my car in the parking lot of the school listening to their recordings from the National Concert Band Festival and and weeping a little bit as I was thinking, I don't know how to make a band sound like that. Now, fortunately, Jim was still in the district there at, at Kennedy Junior High, so I just spent as much time as I could still picking his brain uh, throughout that first year. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a rough first year. I mean, anytime you're going to follow not just one, but two legends in Brian Wiss and Jim Stombries and go in there and, and try to take over and then, you know, have it with, with John Nawarda being a, a new guy, fresh out of, you know, Buffalo, New York and, uh, and Northwestern as well, you know, as, as my, as my coworker and trying to, you know, figure out how we're going to make this storied program stay a storied program. Um, my, I guess the saving grace was the jazz ensemble made it to the Essential Ellington hmm. uh, competition that first year. And so that was kind of it. It was, it was a rough year up until about the beginning of March when we heard that we made Essential Ellington. Yeah. Then, then I was in. Then, then the kids accepted me, the parents and, and the administration is like, okay, this, is, this guy's the real deal. We're going we're gonna to stick with him. And so things kind of just kept improving from there. And I spent uh, 19 years at Naperville North, uh, played the National Concert Band Festival three times, IMEA two, three times, both jazz and concert, um, Super State several times. Um, and then, of course, there were the, the golden years where you joined me there for two years. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then we we, we uh, actually were honor band at Super State that that. That One of those fun, years. Yeah, it was a fun couple of years. Yeah. Um, well, let's let me go backwards here a little bit. Do you think you have to have a quick win that first year in order for for people to accept you in in a program like a, a Naperville North? You know, maybe not even a quick win, but just some 
sort of success that year. Well, what what if that didn't happen? You know, the the graph that I think Brian Wiss came up with, or he stole it from somebody else, but I, I always thought it was a brilliant graph, is it kind of shows if you come into a program and it's a fantastic program with a beloved band director, your job is don't change anything the first year. And that's kind of what I walked into at Naperville North. So I really tried to not make changes, not make waves. Uh, and that, that was a good plan. Um, the, the other parts of the graph are if it's a great program, but the kids don't like the band director, well, make sure you keep what was making the program great and then try to be a nicer guy. Yeah. And if it's the other way, if it's uh, well, kind of like what I had at Limestone, where it's a program that's got lots of potential that the kids love the band director, but maybe they're not really achieving what they could. Well, then you got to try to figure out why the kids love that director, try to be that nice guy, but still at the same time, start raising the standards. And then the bottom corner of that graph is bad band director, bad program. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Do whatever everything. you want. You change everything <laughs> at that point. What were some of uh, other struggles that first year? You know, it, it, it sounds like the kids had some issues with transition. Well, and and they got it as a big surprise. That was that was another problem in that, you know, I think they knew that that Brian Wiss was leaving. So they'd had a year to prepare for that because he'd been on sabbatical that entire year getting his doctorate. So the freshman didn't even know who he was. Okay, but with with uh, Jim Stombries, it was mid-July. All of a sudden the rug was pulled out from under them. So so they had that to deal with. Uh, I think one bit of brilliance was I made sure I had Jim since he was still in the district anyway, come in and guest conduct the senior farewell concert at the end of the year and made sure that, you know, he could be in front of those kids and really get a chance to say goodbye yeah. at that point. Because ultimately, we're all, if, if we go into a new job, we're replacing somebody else. Mm-hmm. We're replacing that position. There's not a lot of people out there that get to open up a new school, for example. Did you ever get that opportunity? I did not. Okay. So I'm looking back at a couple things that, and some of these things I know the answer to already, but I think they'd be good for people to hear. Other things I don't. Um, I'd forgotten that you didn't take private lessons growing up. And um, I know you said there wasn't a ton of music in your home, if I remember right, right, as well. So is this just something that you're naturally good at? Hmm. Well, and that's okay. <laughs> you know, it's funny because there seems to have been a shift away from using the word gifted. Okay. Uh, it seems like we're being told as teachers that we're no longer allowed to tell a student that they're good at something. That, you know, it's kind of like from uh, whiplash, that the two worst words you could ever say to someone is good job. Yeah. Because then, then you know, if they're, if they're good at it, then why should they work at it? So, and I can kind of see the point, but, you know, I believe that, you know, the good Lord does bestow gifts on different people in different levels in different areas. And some people simply, you know, get to start the race a few steps ahead of other people and some people way behind. And I, I absolutely believe that everyone can learn, that everyone can can find success 
playing a musical instrument or, or just yeah. about anything. And anything that's not, you know, you're so physically limited that it's simply impossible. All right. I'm not going to play in the NBA. I'm five foot 10 and 54 years old. However, mm-hmm. um, I can still play basketball and I can still learn to, to make a free throw sure. and be consistent at that. So God gave you musical talent. What did he forget to give you? Hmm. Um, <laughs> the ability to remember children's names. This has been my career-long bane. And, and it was bad enough when I was younger. But oh, here's gosh. the problem. When you've been teaching for over 30 years, there's only a certain number of faces out there. I have had so many kids that look like another kid I had 10 years before, so that I call them that name just because, you know, that looks like Bobby to me. Yeah. And I'm Connor. That's, that's uh, actually uh, my daughter's <laughs> husband is one of them. He looked like Bobby, who I had earlier. So I think I, I oh, accidentally gosh. called him Bobby once. And I've had other ones. There's, yeah. So it, it just, that's always been the thing that I've, I've struggled most with. And it's not just remembering students' names, remembering composers' names, remembering titles of pieces. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I seem to have this, this musical brain, but not necessarily a brain that can remember names of things and sure. people. Did, it, did anybody ever think then, since you weren't remembering names or something, that you didn't care? I'm sure they did. Okay. And that's um, not true. Oh, oh right. certainly yeah. not. Um, you know, it's it's not not a matter of not caring. It's just yeah. a matter of it's just not clicking uh, <laughs> sometimes. I mean, even on concerts, you know, when I'm introducing, you know, a soloist or something, um, uh, help me out. And it's yeah, a kid, yeah. you know, a kid I've had for four years and we've you done so much together. Well, I know yeah. the parents and it, it just the yeah. name won't come in that moment. So you said, you know, we're not allowed to say gifted anymore. But then sometimes I think, too, as, as teachers today, you know, if you have a, I don't want to call it a fault, but maybe something that you're just not great at sometimes, that's a bad thing, too, it seems. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's just uh, kind of interesting to, to think about with that. But, <laughs> you know, that's that's how that is. So I'm, I'm thinking about, too, um, a few things you've talked to me about before. And you've been uh, Milledgeville, Watsika, Limestone, Naperville North. Yes. And did your band sound the same across all four of those schools? Um, in in my memory, of course, because yeah. my memory is you know rose colored glasses. Um, you know I, the Milledgeville band. You know with twenty eight kids in the high school band. You know we, I right away challenged them. I I put. Variations on a Korean folk song and uh, Irish tune and Shepherd's Hay. And those were our contest pieces. And that was way above any level of music they'd ever played before. They literally had only played Jim Swearingen pieces at contest Mm -hmm. for years. And so that was a a whole new level for them. Um, I was, you know, cocky enough at the time that I didn't realize that maybe I, I was maybe overreaching for them. But I really thought, they did a great job. I mean, you know, the results were, you know, straight ones at contest. So I have that empirical evidence. Um, as I went to Watsika, it was a, it was another small school, small town, different challenges, a very rich marching band mm-hmm. uh, tradition. So I was able to capitalize on that right away. But the sitting down bands, that 
that was a, a whole different thing, and that was quite the process to get that to come up to that level. Sure. Um, limestone, um, again, it was a program with so much potential that I, I felt like we made a ton of progress in the five years I was there. Um, I, I felt like we maybe weren't national concert band festival worthy at that time. I think they since have become that okay. that level. Um, but in the five years I was there, I, I did, didn't feel like that. I really got them to there. Uh, with Naperville North, I, of course, had to start at that high level and find a way to maintain it and f- try and find whatever cracks I could find that things that I could bring to the table to uh, to maybe raise the stakes in other areas. Sure. So do you think, this is just a question I have, do you think the the wealth of the area has an effect on the success? Well, Because for those, um, of those people not familiar with Naperville, it's a wealthy area. It is. It's, and, and not just wealthy by Illinois standards, but national standards. It's a very, very wealthy area. Um, from, from the standpoint of the parents and the kids that you've got, highly driven, sometimes too driven. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great support individually in particularly. Um, they have, you know, they'll, the private lessons, that's almost an expectation that that's what is going to happen. Uh, I've never really had to push private lessons because that's just what you do. Um, Usually, you know, higher quality instruments that they can afford for themselves. Uh, The school district was a bit of a surprise um, in that Naperville 203, although fantastic, you know, award-winning school district, but I walked into a a band program with very few school-owned instruments and, and really not a whole lot of percussion. Uh, I had to spend a lot of budget dollars just, you know, getting past one broken down Deegan marimba and uh, getting some actually quality instruments back there. And, and the and the uh, the district did a big uh, financial initiative that finally about my third year there, we bought a fleet of, you know, good French horns and good tubas and things like that. So um, it, it got a lot better in, in a very short order. Um just in in the equipment that we could have but you know kids are kids i had just as many you know when you talk percentages of kids that are all state level kids i had just as many in watsika and milledgeville and limestone as as i've had at, at naperville north um you had what like all staters just yes yeah. hot shot kids okay. you're, you're gonna find hot shot kids pretty much everywhere um and those kids the fact is they're gonna do great no matter who their band director is yeah. <laughs> to a large extent. Um, it's, it's the kids on the lower end in the middle that you really are going to have the most impact on. So what you're saying is that you don't have to be at a wealthy school to have a good band program. Oh, certainly not. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've managed it at several schools at several levels. So, so, in terms of your career, you've done Midwest, you've done National Concert Band Festival, you've done IMEA, essentially Ellington. Um, really cool things. Congratulations. Great. Thank you. Looks great on a resume, right? Um, as you look back at those things or maybe some other experiences, what are some, some things that you think that you're most proud of in your career? Well, I mean, 
there of course you know performing in midwest is 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 everything that people say it would be and and it was a fantastic experience uh getting to perform in great halls that's always great and perform for you know to, to get to shake winton marcellus's hands and have him tell you you know good job you know after a performance those are all great things but the things that that really stick out are you know some of the the letters i get from kids afterwards mm-hmm. um i had one student uh at watsika who pretty much everybody had given up on her she was learning disabled mildly and she just was not getting the flute and uh um the the other director was was just as frustrated as as the rest of her teachers and so you know i i because you know it was a small band and i i needed a body out there and uh she she was such a sweet girl i you know i wrote special flute parts for her and i did that pretty much throughout her years in high school just knowing what she could do and what she could achieve and then you know years later she sent me a a lovely letter saying she was a nurse now And thanking me for, you know, being able to give her the confidence that she, she wasn't getting from anything else she was doing, yeah. even though she, obviously she didn't go into music, but, you know, she managed to, to develop the confidence to eventually become a nurse. And that's not easy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and other, other letters, it, it was nice with the retirement, uh, just, you know, the big party they threw for me and, and just lots and lots of cards and notes and things from people yeah. that, uh, you know, I, I I know my ego inflated uh, quite a bit just from the experience of, of retiring. I wish I could do it again. <laughs> well, and I and I remember sitting in the office with you sometimes in over at Naperville North when we shared an office. It was a large office. Oh yeah, it was. Uh, um, it, it was it was a walk-in closet. Let's yeah, face it. it was really. <laughs> I remember you couldn't open the desk drawer while having the door to the office open at the same time it just didn't work out that way um but i remember you getting a lot of those those letters and you would immediately put them up you know and mm-hmm. i, I kind of stole that from you right there some oh, letters I immediately see. just you know stuck them up there and i and i do remember you being very proud of that you know so that's a really cool thing to hear um let's talk about in terms of the the pillars of the program concert band jazz band marching band mm-hmm. right Let's pretend we've got a either new teacher or not even a new teacher, a veteran teacher that's just either afraid of jazz or isn't very good at jazz, doesn't like jazz, which most of the time means they're afraid of it and they don't want mm-hmm. to do it. How do you help somebody out with that? What do they need to do to, to get these kids a better jazz experience? Why do we need that jazz experience? You know, how, how can you help somebody out with that? Well, obviously, they not everybody can go the route I went, which is you know to quit my job and go get a jazz degree. <laughs> um, you're going to have to find your way some other way. Um, you know, before I got the jazz pedagogy degree, making me a master of music and jazz, I still, <laughs> I still made sure that I found ways to listen to it. Truth be told, and and oh boy, some of my my jazz friends they they hate to hear this. Not a big fan of bebop. Yeah, I'm just not. I understand what Miles was doing, what Dizzy and all those guys. I can listen to it and appreciate it, but I don't listen to it for pleasure. 
I'd much rather go old school and listen to Ellington and Basie and Ella Fitzgerald. I'm really more of a, a big band guy. And, you know, th there's kind of an elitist vibe that happens in the jazz world where if you're not into, you know, the, the bebop and the hard bop and, and, and all that stuff, though, then you're, you're kind of old and corny. Okay, I'm old and corny, so I'm a 54-year-old man with a 94-year-old soul. And, uh, you know, so that's worked for me. And in, I, I guess some of it, you know, the ways in which I've shored up that end of things, even though maybe I don't have a complete passion for it, is, you know, writing. You know, if 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 you're if you're teaching a jazz band, especially if you're teaching a middle school jazz band, writing a jazz chart is really not that tough. Um, it, it's 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 in some ways even easier than writing a concert band piece because you know there's fewer fewer moving parts. Okay. Um, and you know, with especially the young bands, it's it's mostly unison within the the instrument family. So you can learn a lot just from doing that. Uh, way back at Watsika is when I started writing jazz tunes. And now, you know, I've got published stuff that that, that people can buy if they go to uh, <laughs> J.W. Pepper um, and, and type in Daniel Moore Music. You'll find all my stuff on there. So. I'm going to censor that out. <laughs> <laughs> what? Because um, I, I know with me, with jazz, like with our program here, we've got we've got two groups. Um, one is a big band. One is Jazz Lab. And I just mm. I stole that idea from from neighborville north um we focus a lot on music from the 40s with the big band mm -hmm. we've been doing a little bit more latin jazz with that recently and then with jazz lab where that's kind of like come y'all come play band anybody can join it any jazz instrument it's it's kind of what literature is out there for that um but i think for somebody like me it was always the improv thing that i was afraid of and am i and yeah, you know absolutely. but i remember listening to your bands there wasn't a lot of improv going on if i remember right or the kids that were doing it i don't remember you teaching improv so how did that happen um the, the improv thing i i teach as needed okay uh if a chart has something that you know i know we've we've got to have somebody soloing here and it's a, a set of changes that maybe is not familiar to the kids um you know, sometimes I'll write a tune just to attack that that idea. Okay. Uh, two of my Latin tunes, uh, Dos Cinco Juan, is all about kids negotiating um, the two five one progression. Okay. In six different keys, and its sequel is Los Otros Dos Cinco Juan, <laughs> so they can get the other six keys as well. So you know, and and you know, I because at Naperville North I ran the top band. Um, of, of the three jazz bands, frankly, I didn't really have to teach a lot of improvisation okay. in that uh, because there would always be a few hot shots that, you know, went to Birch Creek and are taking the private lessons. Sure. And their private teachers were giving them all they needed for that. And I just really just had to guide them as far as, you know, texture and phrasing Okay, is pretty much the limit of what I had to teach um, most of those hot shot kids. Now, when you were at Watsika limestone or milledgeville did you have various levels of jazz band um at limestone we had actually curricular jazz band okay as the top band and then i started a second band that met in the evenings for kids that couldn't fit it in their schedule or you know just 
more of a jazz lab sure. type situation. Uh, the the two little rural schools. I mean, just getting enough for one jazz band yeah, that yeah, was yeah. that was enough. But Limestone was big enough that we were able to support two jazz bands there. So why is jazz good for kids? Uh, well, if, there's of course the the creative element of improvisation. Um, I think they they can learn a lot more about form maybe in jazz than they can from concert band music um, or at least completely different types of forms. Um, I think there's a, there's a, a richness of articulation that exceeds what they're going to get in concert band. Um, Cause really in concert band, we've got to legato and staccato slur, yeah. <laughs> not much else. Or in jazz, if they're really going to, you know, go to that high level, they have to develop a, a much bigger palette of different sounds that they're going to make on the instrument. Um, so there's that. That intimidates um, me. <laughs> it does. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, that's just one of those things where like, I'm always trying to get better at the, the jazz part mm-hmm. of it. But uh, yeah, it's just, you know, I, I know it's not impossible. It's just, right. you know, you get 10, 12 years in and then all of a sudden you hear, okay, well here's this set. But if you really want to master this portion of it there's there's just more flavor there's more variety to it there's more ways to go about it mm-hmm. well with the articulation and 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 the vocabulary of jazz you you just got to go back to scat you just listen to to louis and ella mm. and if they go do ya bad and did it you try to make your trumpet not go ta 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 <laughs> but rather do ya dad and did it and when you start making that happen, then you've got a jazz vocabulary that's beyond just traditional classical articulation. I think the other part, too, and I mean, we just don't get this from teacher training schools as well, unless you do a jazz pedagogy mm-hmm. um, program looking at jazz charts, because you don't use the articulation that's written on the charts all the time. No, right? and, and, and many composers overdo it and okay. try to put in traditional symbols for all that articulation, um, which that can be helpful only up to a point. Okay. There's a point at which you got diminishing returns. Yeah. And, you know, those, those, your, your Mercado accents, your agogic accents, your staccato dots and your tenuto marks, that isn't going to cut it for everything else that needs to be happening in there. And there you've just got to go to the recordings. Okay. Um, So you're almost better with a, a, Blank slate, no articulations. Well, that's, that's kind of what the Essentially yeah. Ellington project has done. Uh, okay. Dave Berger and some of the other people they've had write these charts. They transcribe those Ellington charts with virtually no articulations written in whatsoever. Yeah. With the idea being that you have to go to the recording. The kids have to listen and they have to process and maybe get, they get their pencils busy sure. as they're listening and, uh, and, and write in some of those articulations or make up some of their own annotations and articulations just to, to, to remind them of what it sounded like on the recording. Can you tell people what essentially Ellington is with that project? Cause I didn't know about it until I met you mm-hmm. and, and what that is and how it might benefit somebody with no resources and how it might benefit somebody with a really high level program mm-hmm. as well. Well, uh, mid nineties, uh, Wynton Marsalis managed to get a whole lot of corporate funding at, at jazz from Lincoln center which kind of has its home at at a, at a Lincoln Center where Juilliard is and things. And he managed to start first just a regional New York area festival where 
what they did is they would hire someone. Dave Berger was one of the first ones to do uh, transcriptions. And they would transcribe six Ellington charts. Now, most of the Ellington stuff was not available. Uh, whereas Count Basie, he used uh, writers like Sammy Nestico and Neil Hefty, and they published all their stuff. So you can get Sammy Nestico stuff and Neil Hefty stuff. That's all still um, uh, very easy to get a hold of. But the Ellington stuff was virtually non-existent because most of that music was just Duke and Billy Strayhorn just scribbling things out on paper. And then the band would eventually memorize it and that paper would just be lost. Uh, so it had to be transcribers like Dave Berger who could just listen to the recording and just write it all down again. And the great thing about it is, uh, and they still do this, is you get these charts for free. Six brand new jazz band tunes every year they come out with. What do you have to do to get those? Um, you Jazz at Lincoln Center, um, if you go to their website, which is not jazz at Lincoln Center. That always confuses people. Um, but if you, you find your way to jazz at Lincoln Center, there's a, the director's track and director's academy, yeah. and they have all kinds of things. And uh, you can just, you basically just submit your information and saying, I would like these tunes. Yeah. It used to be they would actually print them and mail them to you, but now nowadays it's all just digital. There's downloads. a limited version. There's a limited uh, amount of those because mm -hmm. um, my first year here, I got the printed versions. And you do you get a box of music right. for no no money. Right. <laughs> and then the second year, I didn't make the cut for that. Like I just didn't get our info in early enough. Mm. But they said you can still have a digital download. They said we're just out of the hard copy. Right. Which I, I thought still was cool. Like you get, you know, right. you get the recording, you get the director track, you get resources. Um now they are hard. Yeah. Oh my I gosh. Mean, you know, it, but it, there's one or two that we were able to pull off here our, our jazz yeah. program's probably about a grade two grade three right. what what make them difficult is i mean the guys that played with with duke were they were unique yeah and so the charts were written for those guys whereas uh neil hefty and sammy nestico were writing charts for the basie band but it was for interchangeable parts yeah uh basie band duke didn't even write the the didn't write first trumpet he wrote cat he didn't write fourth trumpet. He would write the name of whoever the player was on the mm -hmm. part. And so that's something that makes it difficult as you're trying to, to recreate something that was specifically written for sure. individuals. And uh, just the fact that in the reed parts, those guys all doubled. So you got clarinet parts and bass clarinet yeah. parts and things like that. So well, even things you wouldn't expect. There was, was it a trumpet player, Ray Nance? Mm -hmm. They've also played violin. Right. So there's some of those parts. You look, look at those, you're like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, and they always had a boy and a girl vocalist, and so you, yeah. you've you got those vocal charts that come with that. Uh, Juan Tizal was a valve trombonist, so there are things that are on that third trombone part that are not playable yeah, yeah. on a slide trombone. Duke never used a fourth trombone, so those charts don't come with a fourth trombone part. Mm. So sometimes you got to get creative sure. uh, with that. So you know they they're very faithful to the original. They don't they don't repackage it for five saxes, four trombones, four trumpets. They transcribe it for exactly the instrumentation that was originally used. They've kind of run out of Ellington charts, so now they're okay. using a lot of other composers as well, but from that same era. But it's it's the same same basic deal. And uh, the the contest that they have, the festival, which now, you know, by the time that we did it in 2000, had become a national festival. 
Um, basically, you pick three of the charts. At least, I think at least one of them has to be from this year's crop, but you can use them from previous year's crop for the other two charts. And you make a recording, you send it in. If they decide you're one of the top 15 in the country, you get to come to New York City and they give you lots of money to do it. Wow. This is the thing that's different from any other festival, whereas, you know, other festivals, whether it's concert or jazz, it's uh, you give us a bunch of money and you can come and play in our festival. It, uh, the Essential Ellington thing is so underwritten by corporate sponsors. Uh, I think the year that we went, uh, they just gave us $5,000 for travel money for the band to come. Hmm. And then the district matched that, and that paid for the trip. It cost the kids yeah. nothing wow. to go play in New York City for Wynton Marsalis. Yeah, and, and then we got, we got some parades around here that will charge you to participate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marching band. You're the only person I know where someone <laughs> says, you know, that's a Dan Moore show. <laughs> and I'm sure people will go on YouTube afterwards and, and look this this stuff up. First off, what show should they go look up? Oh, uh, probably the one they'll find the best one on YouTube is from 2005. Okay. That's, that's kind of my, my fave rave. That one, uh, it was called Extra Extra. It was about the daily newspaper, which now... Kids don't know what that is, yeah, no. um, but uh, that one, they have the, there's a YouTube on that from uh, the St. Louis Regional. There's they, a YouTube on that? Yeah, there, there's a YouTube on that, <laughs> on the internets, and uh, it's that's from uh, St. Louis 2005. We made finals that year and everything, so that okay. that's a pretty good one. There's other ones as well. Sure. Yeah. What is a Dan Moore well, show? Well, that's, that kind of, well, it, I'm, I'd say I'm half responsible for that, because okay. I do have this kind of warped sense of humor um but you know when i got to naperville north um i had already done kind of you know lighter more fun type shows at limestone and watsika um before that um i'd never really been into doing dark i was i did a lot of broadway shows bye bye birdie guys and dolls chorus line things like that and then i started doing some original stuff my last couple years at limestone um but uh you know Concurrent with that, you know, Brian Wiss at Naperville North did Cartoon and PDQ Box 1712 Overture. Those were like his last two shows at North. So when I came to North, it was just like, well, I just keep doing the funny. So that wasn't new. No, that wasn't new to Naperville North. So that, that first year, because I got the job so late, I couldn't really come up with anything original we just did we did a danny elfman show so we had the simpsons theme and beetlejuice and all that and we kept it light and fun from there we started doing more concept shows uh usually around something humorous department store fairy tales the newspaper uh, silent movies things like that so i kind of got this reputation for that's what dan moore does is is the funny (laughs) and yes i loved the bridgman back in the day and the velvet night so yeah that that that's also part of it as well. But, you know, and now that I'm writing for a lot of other schools, not everybody's doing the funny. Yeah. And so they're, they're hiring me to do the serious stuff as well. Um, it, it's, it, it took a little bit to get people to, to understand that I can do the serious stuff. Uh, for Geneseo last year, we did um, uh, kind of a, a mashup of Madame Butterfly and Turandot. Okay. So that was, you know, opera. I'd never written an opera show before, but yeah, that, yeah. that really was received well. And, and a lot of other people saw that show and said, okay, yeah, this guy, he can, he, he can do something besides just yeah. the, the wacky, funny stuff. You get that with movies. I remember, um, 
comedians like you would have Robin Williams would go into a dramatic role mm-hmm. and people they were shocked that he could act. Right. So, you know, it's like Yeah, he went to Juilliard. Yeah. He studied with John Houseman. <laughs> so he he was an actor. Yeah, yeah. So what what goes into a a marching show for you? If I remember right, you did the whole thing. Yeah, I'm I'm something of a control freak. Um, You're a band director. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a trumpet player, band director. That's even you know even worse. Um, but you know, it usually just kind of starts with a concept. What's what's a broad concept that uh, that we can we can go from there. Um, this this year i'm in the midst of writing a, a show that's kind of a rehash of a show i did many years ago um called around the world in 0.008 days uh so it's a marching band show that just takes you through every continent um using you know themes everybody knows um from the various countries whether it's their anthems or simply a style of music associated with each of those countries and continents and just kind of go from there um the nice thing about when i do it all myself is i don't have to wait for somebody to meet a deadline so it's it's just me uh, if those drum parts aren't done it's it's my fault if the drill isn't done it's it's my fault so uh so that that's always been kind of a one of probably my favorite advantage is is being able to to have you know control of the deadlines sure was that was that tough to see that because that shifted like there's not mm-hmm. a lot of people that still do that yeah right i, I mean, mean there, there's you know, just not a lot of people that again do that. i i studied the feet of of you know dale hopper and greg bim and ken snook yeah. and these guys that were doing the music and the drill and doing the everything um you know greg is still managing to make it happen yeah um yeah. so you know we're, he does okay we're yeah he does okay <laughs> uh so we're i'm i'm kind of a dinosaur i guess in in that respect um i i, I don't do exclusively complete package shows like that there's a couple schools i'm i just did the music for a couple others i'm just doing the drill for um that just means a lot of communication um, I, I really make a pest of myself if, if I'm not going to have control over that end of things. I really want to know everything. And I think sometimes to the point where the directors are like, okay, have I given you enough information yet? To which my answer is no, I need more. I want to make sure I know what those snares are playing. Sometimes they'll want to, they want you to just write the drill. They'll just give you the horn book. Oh, the drum book's coming later. No, 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 no. I'm not writing one dot until yeah. I have the drum book. And, and that includes pit. I want to know what they're doing, where they're going to be, and what kind of players you have in that pit before I'm going to write drill for it. Because I, you know, information is is power. Yeah. <laughs> so I want that information. Which is harder to do, the music or the drill? Um, it's funny because you make more money writing drill, but music takes a lot longer. Hmm. Um, so to write a music book, um, probably... Uh, it'll probably for a, a good competitive show probably take me 60 80 hours of work to write a music book uh drill 40 to 60 hours um depending on you know what what level i'm writing and how big the band is 
Um, so it, it's it's kind of interesting that people almost think like, well, that's just the music. I could buy that. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't pay as much for that. But drill, it's like, well, I don't know how to write drill, so I gotta <laughs> I gotta pay this guy pretty well in order to to get you know what yeah. we're looking for. Do you do you think that's just kind of a lost? art form in the band director now just enough of us just don't know how to write drill well it's just it's become so intricate and so difficult and difficult on the kids okay Uh, i guess if there's another selling point for for my services as a drill writer is that i understand that i'm not writing for 19 to 22 year old drum corps athletes I'm writing for 13-year-old boys that still haven't figured out how those huge feet they recently acquired work. (laughs) I'm writing for kids that aren't the athletes in the school. Let's face it, the band kids, you got kids all shapes and sizes, and they can't all jazz run. And to understand that, you know, you've got to find some, some limits in that, and that writing for a high school band has to be different from writing for a drum corps. Hmm. Now, maybe some of these, you know, broken arrows where they got 800 kids in the band program and the top 200 get to be in marching band, maybe they can, you know, can push those top kids like that. But I I, I try to have a heart (laughs) when it comes to what what the kids can reasonably achieve physically in drill. So is marching band art or is it entertainment? Oh, my goodness. I'm just trying to get you hate mail. Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, well, there's no shortage of that. Um, uh, you know, I I think when we become too full of ourselves and get too artsy with it, we really run the risk of not just losing our audience, but losing the activity. I, I you know, and, you know, I know that makes me sound, again, like an old guy. Sure, sure. Um, but- that, but... I, I just think there's got to be something to draw in people who are the casual fans okay. and not just the geeks. Um, it, and I feel like there's just an awful lot in the upper echelons of the marching band and drum corps world that I think drum corps has gotten better with it. I think marching band's still got, got to learn. Drum okay. corps has figured out how to get the, the uh, average Joe back in okay. some ways marching band not so much i i you know i go to i go to the bands of america shows and i sit and i watch finals and sometimes i think i just saw the same show 10 times mm. because there's all these formula and all these expectations that have to be met in order to succeed competitively that i think we've lost some of the variety and that that bothers me and you've been involved long enough i remember you saying that you know, you couldn't even amplify your pit at one point. Oh yeah, you know yeah, that was. So, what new. do you see? What do you see in ten, fifteen years? What do you think this activity is going to look like? What's the What's the craziest thing you can think of that's going to oh, happen? Oh my goodness! Um, gosh, have hoverboards? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's. Uh, I don't think. A whole lot has changed in drill design other than the physicality of it, of asking the kids to do more and more and more athletic things. A lot more choreography involved. Uh, Yeah, a lot more choreography beyond the drill, um, which I'm fine with that. I got no problem with the choreography. If if that kid lets the kid not march 180 for for eight counts and get to do something else for a while and catch his breath, great. Um, 
but uh I guess one thing that has bothered me is is the style of music has moved more toward texture and less toward melody. Okay. Um, I I when when melodies happen, they seem to be snippets of melody and not complete thoughts. Um, so that riff based. Yeah, and and just texture and and you know not that I have anything you know against uh, you know Philip Glass and the minimalist stuff, but. If every every band in finals is doing the same minimalist textural stuff, it I I I want to go get popcorn. Okay. So concert band, sit down band. Oh, sitting down band. Sitting down band. <laughs> oh. So your band's playing tune. Yeah. How do you do that? Um well, that's that's changed over the years. Um I guess one of the things I guess I, I'm gifted at is I've always had really good ears um, and really good diagnostic ears and that I can hear. Do you have perfect pitch? I do not have perfect pitch. I've been accused of that many times. Okay. I do not have perfect pitch. I, I have relative pitch. I, I need to reference pitch first. I can't just pick one out of the air. Um, but I, I can, even you know at my advanced age, I'm still able to stand in front of a group and hear sometimes to the individual who's out of it. And sometimes I can tell just by looking at them who's out of it. Uh, <laughs> you know, just look at the embouchure uh, or look at what they're doing mechanically with the machine they're holding and, uh, and make an educated guess. Um, so, you know, for many years through my first three jobs, I was pretty much just picking note by note. And I was, you're sharp, you're flat, I'll fix this. And I would just assemble the puzzle but i wasn't giving the kids any ownership of that whatsoever it was just me hearing what was wrong and fixing it and eventually a good product sure um neighborville north i got there and it's like wow how, how, how can you make a band sound like that you know and jim stombries turned me on to some of the things that he and brian wiss had been doing with the stephen melillo things um and and finding just intonation rediscovering uh, just intonation. So um, with that, I kind of took the ball and ran with it and came up with exercises for my kids to get them to really understand um, not just their role in a chord, but their role within just a key center. Um, I think some people jump past that and they go right to tuning chords, okay. which is great. I mean, you want that major third to come down. You want that fifth to be on the, on the top side. That's great, but you can have the kids solve a great deal of that, even if they don't know whether they're the root third or fifth of the chord. If they just understand that if they're playing, if a trumpet player is playing in the key of F major concert, G for the trumpet player, I, I want them to understand that when they get to that D, that fifth note of the scale, it's not just whether that's the root third or fifth of a chord, it's the fifth of the one chord, obviously, but just understand that relative to tonic, that D has to come up. And it's one of the flattest notes on the horn. So that's what makes F, even though we think of it as an easy key to play in, it's easy on the fingers. It's not so easy on the intonation. F is actually a difficult key to get a band to play in. C even more so. C's really got all kinds of quirks. Just the octave trumpet from C to shining C or yeah. D to shining D for the trumpet, that's not an octave. <laughs> not on the machine, it's not. So getting the kids to understand relative intonation in scales first 
and then moving in to the courts. So what does a typical warm-up routine then look like for your ensembles? Uh, breathing exercises first, always. Um, I've been a, I've I've been into breathing for oh, f- almost fifty-five years. Okay. I've been into breathing. Uh, I've been concentrating on breathing, however, uh, since the drum corps days. Um, you know that was really the first my first exposure to the the breathing gym type of stuff. Um, so you know that would have been nineteen eighty-two. And I've kind of used those exercises and developed them and tweaked them and things. Um, and uh, I've, I'm really into showing the kids how their lungs work because I didn't know how they worked until about mm, 15 years ago. I went to a pulmonologist when they thought I had sleep apnea, but I didn't. Um, but, you know, I, I got gas. Well, yeah, okay. there we go. Um, so the pulmonologist, uh, I got my money's worth with him and that I just took him through everything on the posters on the wall. Now, how does this work? How's the diaphragm actually work? Does the diaphragm, can the diaphragm push air out? No, it can't push air out. It can only pull air in. Oh, I didn't know that. And things like that. And so now I draw lots of pictures for for students and let them know just how their lungs are working. And I think once they realize that there's a lot more going on there than just respiration and staying alive, um, they get a lot better with the breathing. We follow that with Remington. I, I know uh, your interview with Chip recently, you know, pretty much everything he said about intonation. Yeah, that's what I do, too. Uh, the Remington exercise. Uh, I guess one thing that's kind of Don Owens at Northwestern, um, it, Chip kind of alluded to this as well. And I think some of this came from Painter as well as the whole idea that you can't tune a bad tone. So um, I've developed a hierarchy that I constantly reinforce with the kids and quiz them on. And that is you have to tone up before you can tune up. If you're not making a characteristic sound on that horn, it doesn't matter if it's in tune. It's still not going to be a pleasing sound. And I tell the kids I want a professional sound, not that I'm going to pay them to make a sound, but I want them to make a sound that I wouldn't pay them to please stop making that sound. <laughs> That's the important thing. So we, we get tone first. And then balance. A lot of people go right to tuning then. I, I, I want to get balance next. And then the tuning. So what I tell the kids is you want to be able to not hear yourself, which sounds like, wait a minute, you're playing an instrument. You want to be able to hear yourself. How are you going to hear if you're in tune if you don't hear yourself? But the fact is, once you get to a point where your sound has blended into the ensemble to the point where you can't distinguish yourself from the rest of the ensemble, well, that's when you're in tune. But first, you got to get the tone because th- if the tone won't blend, it doesn't gonna matter if you're in balance or in tune. Uh, then once the tone's there, if you still hear yourself as distinct from the rest of the group, you might just be playing too loud. Back off a little bit. Once you've solved that, you know you're playing with your best tone and you know you're playing in balance and you still hear yourself as distinct from the group, there's only one other answer. You're simply out of tune. Now, from there, I never use a tuner with the kids. Um, I, I use that for private teaching um, to let them know what their uh, idiosyncrasies are. But basically, when it comes to uh, band tuning, I'm not going to tell them if they're sharp or flat. I know they want me to. Mm-hmm. They're looking at me with those hopeful eyes, and I'm saying, I'm not going to tell you. It's very simple. You're playing in tone. You're playing in balance. You still hear yourself. There's only two answers. You're either sharp or flat change the machine. 
If you change the machine and make it go one way and it gets better, great. If it gets worse, just go the other way. It's not rocket surgery. I mean, there's really just two two choices there. And once the kids get hip to that and realize that it's really a lot simpler than they've been led to believe, mm-hmm. um, then improvement happens just almost immediately. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's my top wind ensemble or the beginning freshman band. Um, they all can get a concert F to sound in tone, in balance, and in tune if you keep on them about it. And once they get that, it's it's almost like like musical crack. Once they hear what it what good sounds like, they don't ever want to sound bad again. Uh, sometimes they will. That's just laziness. And then you remind them again. You remind them of the hierarchy, and then you get that sound that you're looking for back. So, so continue on with the um, technique and warm up. You know, so you said breathing. You said Remington. Mm-hmm. We we went on with intonation. Is there anything else you might do in a warm up? Corrals. Um, for years, I used the Bach corrals, the Mayhew Lake, um, and they're they're wonderful. They are wonderful, but I felt like they weren't simple enough for what I wanted the kids listening to, and that's where the the tuning chords comes in. So I actually developed a, a set of t- my own twelve uh, corrals. Then every one of them is eight measures long, and every one of them pauses on a given chord. So there's three corrals in three different keys that will pause on the one, four, or five chord. So they learn what the major chords in, a, in major keys will sound like. The next three corrals, they will pause on one of the three minor chords, two, three, or six. And they learn how to adjust and hear what part of the chord they are on those. Um, then I have three more corrals that deal with secondary dominance. And basically the rule is, if an accidental has raised your pitch, you're probably the third of the chord. Hmm. Nine times out of ten, if the, the accidental raised your pitch, if it's gone from natural to sharp or flat to natural, you're the third of that chord, most likely. And you know you need to frown that down a little bit. And then three corrals that are in minor keys so they can you know work the other ends of all those chords. Hmm. So those, those are the corrals. Um, I have various other exercises um, that I've, I, I actually put a book together a couple of years ago. It's called Important Ingredients, which is a, a kind of a, a joke on the title Essential Elements. I call it Important Ingredients because the better tile, title was already taken, um, which, where I kind of canonized some of these things. Um, so there's exercises on uh, relative intonation, um, both in scale and in chords. There's rhythm exercises. Um and usually we, I usually don't do a whole lot of rhythm exercises with an advanced band because that's kind of an expectation that they know how to deal with that. But the younger bands, uh, they, they need that type of help. Uh, one of the things that's worked really well is I wrote a uh, set of pointillistic duets in which the students have either the first part or the second part on facing pages. And they, for something as simple as Old MacDonald, what they see on their part might be old Donald, uh, E, I, O, and then the other part has the other notes. So that they have to process not just the notes, but they have to process all those rests 
and silences. So it's songs that they recognize, um, but they're able to then play with a partner or play in the band. I can split the band in half. Um, so that's another book I, I came up with, and I published that one last January called Pointillistic Duets. Mm. And it's a set of, I think, 36 different duets that start off very simple like that. And by the end, they're playing Eine kleine Nachtmusik in two pointillistic parts and uh, William Tell Overture in two pointillistic parts. Mm. So it's it's progressive. The book yeah, gets yeah. tougher and tougher and tougher as it goes. It was funny. When I worked with you, and, and I know some people think this whole podcast is an infomercial, <laughs> and that's not how I meant it, but you did. Um, <laughs> but when I worked with you, there were a few shocks to, to my system, and it was just the way I was brought up. Um, number one, on a personal standpoint, I remember the first time we met and we had way too much in common, <laughs> way, way too much in common with family upbringing and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I remember uh, every Friday was sight reading Friday. Mm-hmm. And we didn't touch that music that we were working on for a concert at all. Right. And holy cow, did that make me nervous? Because mm-hmm. then immediately in my head, I'm like, all right, I'm missing how many rehearsals of this this piece now instead uh but the kids ended up doing okay yeah and then year two when you said you were writing a method book i didn't say this out loud then but i thought method books are for elementary schools Mm. um and that was just me growing up we we had our method book that we used in elementary school which was standards of excellence and then you you had the what the red book and then the green book or Mm. something like that maybe blue book then after that we didn't we didn't have a method book right and, and I know some junior high later on as I'm broadening my horizons, realizing, oh, no, a lot of people use these things, but a lot of people don't. So that was just a very interesting thing for me to figure out because the program I grew up in, in fact, we didn't even warm up hmm. at the beginning of the year. We would play Corral 12 and then by Christmas or so it was go warm up on your own. That's right. what the Chicago Symphony does. OK, now I'll start with you, which it ended up turning out really well for him so that's a method he Mm -hmm. used that was fine i think a different background there so the method book tell us a little bit more about that like why why did you write a method book well um again i came from very similar circumstances my high school band i mean we were lucky if we tuned let alone (laughs) you know did any any actual structured warm-ups um, and, but, you know, again, with the drum corps experience and, you know, I, I tell, I've told people for years that my experience in drum corps, I think I l- learned as much from that as I did from five years of college. And I had a great experience at college, but it was like doubling down with the drum corps stuff because drum corps are, and have always been really into warmups. Um, I mean, your, your, your typical day for a drum corps is um you know calisthenics in basics marching things and then the sections go off and the horn line will spend an hour an hour and a half on lip slurs and warm-up stuff and then maybe you'll start touching the music you've been working on and then you'll have full ensemble rehearsal then you'll have dinner and then you go to the show and at the show you don't have like marching band, you know, half hour block of warm up that some of that has to be basics. No, the horn lines go off. They find their own corner. They'll spend another hour, hour and a half doing lip slurs and doing all these breathing exercises and all these things and then go play the show. So, you know, coming from that tradition, that 
let me know that that was important. I didn't transfer it to band right away, though. For years, I just did band as, as here's how you do band, and or, or here's how you do band, sitting down band, and here's how you do marching band and drum corps. So I was doing all that stuff with the marching band. And it finally just kind of dawned on me that why am I not doing all this great warm-up stuff with the sitting down band? Um, I know we got harder music, we got a contest coming up, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, give a man a fish or teach him to fish. Mm -hmm. That's really what that comes down to. So I just started in, in, I guess, somebody that really kind of kicked me in the pants with, about that was Ray Kramer. Uh, I went to, to, uh, to see him do uh, a clinic, I don't know, must have been 25 years ago, uh, and he was working with the star of an Indiana horn line. This is when they had just become... Uh, not quite blast yet, but they just stopped doing competitive drum corps and they're in that transition phase. And he's working with the horn line and he's doing all these warm up stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's great. And, you know, and I went up to him afterwards and I said, well, that's all great for your brass players, but what do you do with the woodwinds? And he just kind of looked at me and said, don't you think your woodwinds could benefit from all this same stuff that we're doing with the brass? Yeah, yeah, even lipslers. They have to be able to deal with short stem notes and long stem notes and moving all those fingers at the same time. So all the same stuff we're doing with the the brass horn line, you do all that stuff with the woodwinds as well. And that really hit home with me, and that got me thinking more and more. And it's just been this process over the last 20, 25 years of, of deciding that I need to do more of this with the sitting down band. And eventually I just said, all right, time to canonize this because nobody's got this stuff in print. Sure. Nobody's really put this all in one compendium, at least not one that I could find. And so I just picked all my favorite stuff, put it in one, you know, 28 page book, called it important ingredients and put it in front of the kids and experimented on them for a year, tweaked it a little bit, wrote a, a director's uh, supplement that goes with it. And, uh, you know, started selling it through Pepper and Sheet Music Plus a couple of years ago. And uh, it's been selling fairly well. A few of the Illinois, uh, some of the, the better super state bands, such as Joliet, uh, have uh, been using the method. And uh, and hopefully to good results. And it certainly, I, I, it really upped my game even at Naperville North, just canonizing that. I mean, we were at a pretty darn high level. But once I had an actual method that the kids we could look at every day um it i think it it created a consistency that we didn't have before mm. and that let us you know find new levels new heights yeah, yeah. literature what are some of your favorite pieces oh boy what do you like well i that then you know the impending retirement that kind of had me uh going through a bucket list um you know I, i've I guess, I guess, really, you know, you you got to kind of witness some of some of those pieces over the last few years. Uh, uh, Mark Rogers did a wonderful transcription of Gershwin's Cuban Overture, and that was the, the piece we we did that we were named Honor Band uh, three four years ago. Um, so that one was one of my faves. I've done that a couple times. Um, you were always good at here's a famous composer that everybody knows, and here's the piece that they don't know. Yeah, from them. yeah, Robert exactly. Russell Bennett, for example. Robert Russell Bennett. I mean, everybody's done Suite of Old American Dances, which I love, but my favorite piece of his 
is uh, Symphonic Songs for Band, which is a three-movement work, kind of in the same vein as uh, Suite of Old American Dances. It's a little tougher. It's probably half a grade harder, um, especially the first movement. It's got a lot of challenges to it, but it's it's just great exposure for, for soloists. It's wonderful uh, hemiola meters to have to negotiate and just a rousing uh, third movement. Um, and then, of course, Lincolnshire Posey, I've done that. I did it this past year. It was kind of my last hurrah to do that one. I've done that, I think, five times over my career. So there's those. Uh, when it comes to picking repertoire, um, I, I of course, get, try to look at who are my hot shots this year. Um, or who do I think might be a hot shot? Because sometimes there are surprises. It's amazing what happens with kids between their freshman and sophomore year. Um, you know, the boys grow eight inches over the summer, and then some of them, you know, they discover their lungs, and suddenly there's these sounds that that kid wasn't making as a freshman or here as a sophomore. They're making these wonderful sounds, and so I'll change my mind on the repertoire based on, you know, what those first September, October sounds are. Um I probably err on the side of safety, um, but there's a reason for that. And that's kind of a another kind of philosophy of mine that I kind of developed, kind of stole a little bit from Ed Lisk. Um, but that's uh, these these levels that I've developed. I'm actually going to be giving a, a clinic at the Florida Music Educators Association, um, their convention in January in Tampa, um, and all about these levels I've developed. Um, and the idea is I really think there are four levels that kids will progress through. Now we can say all we want to, that we want tone to be number one and tone to be the first thing they're thinking about and intonation. And that's fine. We can say that, but really what kids are most concerned with when they're holding that machine is, am I pushing the right buttons at the right time? And that's what I call level one. That's the notes and rhythms. And that's what the kids want to solve first. And sure, we're going to encourage them to play with great tone while they do it. But really, that's what they want. They want to push the right buttons at the right time. Level two is going to be the rest of the ink. The articulations, the dynamics, everything else that's on that page beyond just pushing the right buttons at the right time. So once the kids have solved level one, then they'll start to pay attention to level two. Level three is what is happening on the other end of the horn. And that's the tone quality and the intonation and the, bend, the blend and the balance and all that. And that's once the kids have solved those first two levels, then they're willing to step onto the other side of the horn and listen to themselves. They're rarely willing to do that until then. And then level four is what I call beyond the ink. And that's going to be the phrasing and all the volume painting, as, as Don Owens used to call it, uh, that go on, that make it human, that make it actually musical. How that relates to repertoire is I, I find so many, especially young, aspiring, many times very talented hotshot band directors, that they'll pick their repertoire based on whether their kids are going to be able to play level one. And, and so they're, they're working on level one, getting them to play all these intricate rhythms and all this incredibly technical music, this grade six, really hard music, but it's all about just getting them to play all the right notes at the right time. And it never really becomes music. 
even if they do manage to play it in tone and in tune, they don't really get it to a point where they can actually have any understanding of what the phrasing is, even if there sometimes is any possible phrasing with some of that music. I'm throwing out everything I thought of for next year. (laughs) So I like to, sure, I I try to have one project piece a year. Sure. Um, You know, whether it's a Lincolnshire or, you know, Cuban Overture or any of these pieces we've talked about. This is the piece that I'm going to pass out in October. And we're going to read it a bit and we're going to mess with it from time to time. We're going to get through the holiday concerts and everything. And then we're going to revisit that piece in January and see, all right, what can we do with this now? Are we going to be able to achieve this? Is this other piece that we were looking at maybe going to be better? Which of these am I going to be able to have these kids have level one solved in a couple of weeks? Level two solved a couple of weeks after that. Level three solved a couple of weeks after that. And then level four is all we're working on leading up to super state or recording for super state or what have you. Um, That's really what I'm more concerned with is the kids getting all four of those levels. And now in the LISC levels, his levels are different, but it's all about level five with him, which he called the summit experience, that nirvana, I tell the kids, where you're what the athletes call being in the zone. Once you have solved all four of those levels, then you get to just make music with your friends and enjoy being awesome. And there's 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 nothing better than that yeah, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. All right. Well, you're retired now. So what are your future goals? Oh, well, the the retirement was pretty much because, uh, you know, I felt like I'd, I'd slain all these dragons. And uh, although, sure, I, I actually could have stuck around a few more years and and uh, and uh, and touched the lives of more children. Um However, uh, what I've really started to enjoy a lot in the last several years is is uh, is being a grandparent, so to speak. Okay. Uh, whereas a parent has to deal with those same kids all the time, every day, grandparent gets to just come and visit, deal with those kids for a day, and then move on and and uh, and visit the other grand grandkids. So I've really enjoyed clinicking bands. This has been kind of a passion of mine is, is going around to, to, to share that, share this bag of tricks that I've got um, with as many people as are willing to listen and willing to bring me in. Um, it was hard to do having a full-time day job. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of took a leap of faith and took the retirement as soon as Illinois said that I could take retirement. And... Uh, to the, now I'm I'm inviting people to to have me in um, and not just wait until you know contest season, but sure. early in the year when I can give some advice on some of these warm up things and some of these things to get a band sounding good in the first part of the year. I'm also writing a lot of marching band shows and drills, so I'm in the midst of a six drill stretch right now. I'm on drill number three, so I've got uh, I've got three weeks to get through. These four drills I'm working on now, I, I, uh, I write a lot of marching band music. I'm publishing a lot of my stuff, self-published right now. I'm trying to see how that works. Uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the John Mackey uh, system is not to go through a publisher and, and do it yeah. all. Do it all yourself, and, and that way you make, you know, all the profit. 
Uh, I've you got, are a very frugal man. Well, I, I am a frugal man. That. So I, I have got it on JW Pepper, most of my stuff, as well as Sheet Music Plus. Uh, when I when I self publish through them, you know, you know, I, I get half. Okay. Um, anything that I'm right now, I'm trying to revamp my website, and I've got you know, starting to get the technology and things for me to sell direct for people that just want to buy digital downloads straight from me. That way, you know. I uh, I make all the profit then on on what I'm doing, so that that's a good thing because I have a a wife that still has to teach for four more years and be my sugar mama uh, while I'm uh, trying this this freelance stuff. Do you know how much money I've made on this podcast? Um, probably not enough. I made, and that's not the reason I do it. <laughs> I made seventy eight cents on Google AdSense, Woo-hoo! and my mixer cost one hundred and twenty bucks. Okay, well, so I'm I'm doing okay. But uh, all right, well, my wife understands. It's a, it's a hobby. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's just what I I like to do. It's know? a passion. That's right. I'm not just chasing the dollars like you. You know, <laughs> so I just want. A roof over my head. So. That's right. So, well, Dan, it was great to sit down and talk with you again here. And uh, again, people can find all of your stuff on it's danielmoremusic.com, correct? Uh, yeah, it's a Wix site. So you okay. might have to put in Wix site after okay. that. And I, I can put a link in, in right. the description for um, it. But yeah, and then the stuff you want to get it at JW Pepper, Sheet Music Plus, you can find all my stuff with recordings. Um, just Daniel Moore Music is what you search in there. And yeah, hope hope people uh, check it out and and, uh, and give me plenty to do in in my retirement. <laughs> I don't want to be idle. I just uh, <laughs> I just want to you know spread the wealth as it were. Well, thank you very much for sitting down here today. Good to see you again. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>